welcome to creating wealth through passive apartment investing podcast in this show we will discuss about best and worst experiences about passive and active apartment investing and i am your host ramakrishna let's begin the show today's our guest is jack haptonstall from gs multifamily welcome jack Hey Rama, thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate it, man, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, providing some value for all your listeners. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for being on the show. A little bit about Jack. Jack is the founder and president of GH Multifamily and co-founder of Rise Forty Eight Equity. He's an experienced multifamily apartment investor currently residing in Scottsdale, Arizona. He's a lead sponsor and equity owner of four twenty units across five properties in Phoenix and Scottsdale, worth over forty eight millions. With that, Jack, would you like to add anything to your background? No, I think you covered it, Rama. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sure. And how did you get started to real estate and multifamily, Jack? Yeah, yeah. So I'll kind of go over my background briefly. So I was born and raised here in Phoenix. I uh, I had a football scholarship to play football at a small school in Colorado. I realized I wasn't going to make the NFL, so I came back to Phoenix. I I got a journalism degree. I wanted to be a sports reporter, so I ended up being a live news anchor and a sports reporter for Arizona PBS, and and I hosted a show on Fox Sports Network Arizona. That was really cool at first, being on live TV and everything. And then I just realized that's not what I wanted to do. That wasn't my passion, you know, and so. You just don't make a lot of money and you work crazy hours. So I wanted to at least make money and, and kill debt. I had a lot of school debt and I wanted to become financially free. So after college, I decided not to pursue journalism and I actually got into healthcare marketing, working for a hospice company where basically hospice is like mobile nursing and caregiving for uh, people who have end of life illnesses. So it's, it's a free service for them, go to their private homes, assisted livings, et cetera. My job was to just drive all around Phoenix and walk into hospitals and doctor's offices and assisted livings and build relationships with physicians and social workers, et cetera. So when they had patients who needed these services, they call me. I'd meet with the patients and the families, educate them and get them signed up for these, these resources. So long story short, hospice, it's very competitive private business industry and it can actually be pretty lucrative if, if you do a good job. And so I was blessed to do a good job in the market and I worked my way up and became a director of marketing and then a co-owner of a company. And so, I mean, I come from a lower middle-class family, Rama. Uh, I don't come from like any wealth or any, any background in real estate either. But by the time I was like 25, I was making over 200K a year, you know, more than both my parents combined. I had bought a house, I got my MBA, paid off all my school debt with cash, and I was doing well, very blessed. I had over 100K in my bank account. And so I was fortunate to have done well um, at an earlier age financially just by working hard and building that up. But I just got burnt out with all of that. I, I just wasn't fulfilled doing the hospice marketing anymore. So I wanted to create passive income and try to gain control back over my time. And I wanted to do it through real estate somehow, but I didn't know much about real estate at all. I had read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in December of 2017, which really kind of shifted my mindset, you know, as focusing on assets and learning about liabilities, et cetera. So in January 2018, I, I said, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. So I had no plan, but I resigned from my job. I sold the equity I had in the company and I said, I'm going to live off savings for the next 12 months. I'm going to figure out how to create passive income somehow 
through real estate. And I didn't know what I was doing, Rama. So I didn't know anything about multifamily. I didn't know anything about syndication. So I was initially looking at like flipping houses. And then I learned about mobile home parks. I cold called over 90 mobile home park owners. Didn't work out. Then I learned about multifamily and uh, syndication. And I just dove straight into that. Long story short, took me 14 months from the, the time I quit my job to close my first multifamily deal. Okay. And we did a tenant in common, a TIC, which we'll talk about. I think Rama, you have questions. But after we did the first deal, we were able to catch momentum and scale up. And we've acquired 420 units across five properties, 48 million, really in the last 18 months, you know, since we got the first deal. So we've been very blessed to catch momentum after that first deal. That's kind of how we got to where we are now. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. So I think it took 14 months, right? So would you walk us through like your mindset before your first deal? Yeah, it was really an evolution. You know, in hindsight, it sounds like so planned out and orchestrated, but it really wasn't. You know, it was like I didn't even know multifamily was initially. So I went through a few months of just trying to learn about all the different parts of real estate. And over that time, I went through a ton of adversity and a ton of self doubt and a ton of discouragement and a lot of criticism from other people um, thinking I'm stupid and crazy for quitting a 200K plus a year job in order to make no money. I was burning through savings. I made no money. You know what I mean? I was burning through savings, which I had worked relentlessly to save. So not only was I not making money, but I was felt like I was almost wasting my previous years of work because I was burning through it so fast. You don't realize how quickly you can lose money when you don't have anything coming in. But I just tried to stay, I just tried to keep attacking and try to keep keep pushing forward. And I really leaned on my faith a lot. I'm Christian. I believe Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. My faith grew during that time. And, and I just tried to seek out not only like the fundamentals of real estate and multifamily, but I also tried to seek out the different roles and understand what value can I bring and what part of this whole piece am I passionate about? And then I can focus on that. And then I want to find the other missing pieces through my partners. Okay. So I started going to conferences and going to meetups and, and all these things in order to find other people who are like-minded like me. And that's when I was able to find find business partners. And then we were able to create infrastructure and then scale up from there. So the, the, the mindset was just continue to attack. It's tough because you have to stay patient because it's not going to happen overnight. And you have to be patient, but you have to always be attacking and trying to move forward to move towards your goal. So you can't just be stagnant. When I say patient, don't just do nothing, you know, and it's great to listen to podcasts and read books, but at some point you've learned enough about the foundational knowledge of how it all works and you need to take action and actually meeting people and building out a team. So that, that's kind of the evolution of the mindset. Awesome. So, and what kind of challenges you faced during early stages of your multifamily journey and how did you overcome them? Yeah, I mean, the biggest challenges were just not being taken seriously by brokers, not having the net worth and liquidity. And a lot of this is just perseverance and grinding through it. You know, like I said, I went going to conferences and meeting other people who are like-minded. And I met a guy who has high net worth, high liquidity here in Phoenix. And uh, and that helped a lot, you know, it helped us sign on these on these loans. And then, I mean, we got the first deal under contract. We didn't know what we were doing. We both had 20, it was Robert and I, my partner, Robert and I, we each had 25,000 non-refundable in earnest money. And we needed to come up with one point. 4 million and we didn't know where to find it. You know, we just kind of, we just kind of moved forward because we liked the deal and we were trying to figure it out as we went along. So that was a scary big challenge. And I found a, another person who had a 1031 exchange to bring in about half of that equity and found some other people to invest with us. And that's when we did that tenant in common. So we had initially planned to do a syndication on the first deal, but it didn't work out that way. We ended up doing a tenant in common. And so we literally adapted while we were under contract and I learned a whole new structure. I didn't even know what a tenant in common was until I was under contract, you know? So 
there's different things that are going to come up and you have to prepare as much as you can, but you can't prepare for everything. So you have to be, you have to just kind of push and be willing to adapt and have confidence that you'll figure it out no matter what type of challenges you face. Sure. So you mentioned about uh, tenant in common, right? Would you tell more about that, Jack? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good question, Rama. So, so whereas a syndication, most of your listeners are probably aware is where you have like general partners who are active and you have limited passive investors who are silent, essentially. A tenant in common is a structure that's very similar to a JV or a joint venture. Well, where let's just say, Rama, for example, you have 500K and I have 500K. We want to go buy an apartment. Well, we can just, we, we can both put our money together and we'll do a tenant in common, okay? But for asset protection purposes, um, you're gonna wanna create an LLC and I'll create an LLC. So you're gonna be one tenant in common or one tick LLC, and that's the acronym for tenant in common, and I'll be one tick LLC and we can buy that property together, okay? So the, the thing about a tick is that everybody in it has to be active. There are no passive investors, so you're legally active and there's unanimous voting regardless of the ownership amount. So let's just say you bring 900K and I bring 100K, Rama. You're gonna own 80% of the deal and I'm gonna own 10% of the deal. But for all the major decisions, we have to unanimously decide and agree on the voting. So that's how a tenant in common deal is structured. And the benefits of a tenant in common or a tick deal are that you can 1031 exchange into them, you can 1031 exchange out of them. So for example, on our deal, we had three different tenant in common LLCs. So three tick LLCs. I had one tick LLC where I'm putting in my chunk of money. Uh, my partner Robert had his tick LLC where he put in his chunk of money. And then we had a lady named Elisa Zhang out of Seattle. She sold a 12 unit deal and she 1031 exchanged into our deal. She had her own LLC, which was already in place from her 1031 exchange. And she was the third tenant in common LLC. So together among our three LLCs, we came up with the equity required to close the deal. And the cool thing is, is that you can have members inside each tenant in common LLC. So in my LLC, I have a few people. Robert has some people to, to grow that pot. Well, long story short, we're, we bought that deal last year. We're actually about to, we're, we're selling it. We're under contract to sell. We're closing here in a couple weeks. And uh, the cool thing is it gives you flexibility. Elisa, who had 1031 exchanged into the property, she wants to keep rolling that money and not pay the capital gains. So she's going to 1031 when we're selling it, she's going to 1031 her LLC and into a new deal. Okay. Separate of us. And then Robert and I, we're each going to just take our cash so that we have more liquidity to do larger syndication. So it, you can, it gives you flexibility for the entry and the exit where you can put your money together with other people to one, to make, basically form one big pot. And then when you want to exit, you can 1031 out and take your LLC and separate from people. So it gives you more flexibility. And for us, it worked well to get that first deal done. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. So what if the uh, one of the TIC member want to sell Harar is interest? So what is the process? Yeah. So you're saying if, if one tick LLC wants to sell her interest to the other members? Yeah. Yeah. So everybody would have to agree on that. And you can do that. We would just have to buy her out. So we'd have to buy out that tick LLC and take control. And then she would pay capital gains on that money. And then we would now own that tick LLC. But the three tick LLCs are, are separate and they're all tenants in common in the one deal. So it's kind of like a joint venture, like I said. So you can do that. We would just have to buy her out and everybody would have to agree on that. Okay, great. So any challenges from lending point of view? No, not really. I mean, we have five properties now. We're closing on a sixth one next month. And of those six, two of them are tenant in common tick deals, including that first one. And the two tick deals are Freddie Mac small balance loans. So they're non-recourse loans, 10-year term uh, with, with, uh, with interest only on the front end. So there's really no major challenges from a lending perspective. It's just that 
they have what's called a tick agreement. Freddie Mac has a form loan doc that you can't really change. It's called a tick agreement. So you just have to have, you have to sign a tick agreement, which basically just gives the lender all the uh, protections that we're all active and equal. You know what I mean? Like equal voting, unanimous voting. So it doesn't create a big challenge. It's just more about your, uh, your org chart and your asset protection structure that's different than a syndication. So any risk with the TIC or tick? The thing with the tick is that you really need to trust your partners, you know, because I mean, everybody has to make a unanimous vote and you need to be on the same page. And so you don't necessarily want to get into a tick deal with people that you don't either trust or feel comfortable with, or that you, you feel like you all have the same goal, just because if somebody wants to sell and somebody else doesn't want to sell and there's a major disagreement, tough stuff. You know what I mean? Like you're going to have to all have a unanimous decision and all agree on that stuff. And that's written out in the tick agreement that you sign with the lender. And so, I mean, that, that would be one of the risks is that you just need be more careful with your partners. Whereas like with a syndication, you're going to have your general partners who you need to be on the same page with, but then you have a bunch of passive investors who have no decision-making control, right? They sign the private placement memorandum, basically that discloses all the risks and, and they're, they're passive. They don't have any decision-making power. Whereas in a tenant in common, you need to be unanimous. You need to make sure that everybody in the deal is playing an active role and doing some type of, some type of activity, you know, to show that they're active and that they're not just simply a passive investor. So those are some of the differences and some of the things to be aware of when you're doing um, a, a tick deal. Great. Yeah. Thanks again. Thanks for sharing. Would you tell us your best and worst experiences with tick? Yeah, with the tick, I would say, I mean, the best experience is just um, getting, the, getting that first deal. I mean, it was nice to be able to use that strategy to actually close that first deal. I wasn't really familiar with it, you know, and that you don't have to syndicate every deal. If you can bring a large 1031 exchange partner in to fill a bunch of the equity you need, it's very helpful to get that from one source, you know? So that was, that first deal was probably my best experience. And, and the other deal that we have is a tick, is a, it's a deal in Scottsdale. It's a really, it's an A location. And we're going to just hold that deal for a long time with a lot of, so we get a lot of cash flow. I'm getting monthly cash flow from it, which is nice, passive income. As far as the worst experience with a tick. Honestly, we have not had a, a bad experience with the, with the tick itself. I mean, I guess I've had some bad experiences in real estate. We've never lost money or anything like that. But with the tick, we haven't really had a bad experience. I mean, we're, we're getting ready to sell our first deal, which was a tick in about 18 to 19 months. We executed our business plan and it went very well. And so uh, we haven't really had any bad bad experiences with it. That's good. Yeah. yeah. So what are your focus markets and what is the reason? Yeah. So, I mean, our group Rise 48 Equity is consists of Bikron Sandu, who's uh, in California. And he'll be moving here later this year. And then Robert Shevchik, who's out here in Phoenix. And then myself, who's here in Phoenix. And so two of three of us and, and all three of us will be here in Phoenix by the end of the year. We're, we're local. We're only focused on Phoenix. Okay. So we're not looking at neither markets. We think Phoenix is the best multifamily market in the entire nation. I mean, if you look at the fundamentals, it's been number one for new population growth for three consecutive years. Okay. And that's, that's according to the U.S. Census Bureau. It's been uh, number one in the country the last two years for rent growth at 8% year over year. And then it's number two in the country for job growth behind Dallas. So when you look at the fundamentals, you got population growth, job growth, rent growth. And I mean, there's, it, it's just a great market. You know, the, the jobs here are very diverse. More and more jobs keep moving here. We have a ton of people moving from California here, from Washington state, from Oregon, because of cost of living, politics, taxes, things like that. And so you got people here who are moving to a lower cost of living, but there's just as good a job. So they have a higher quality of life. And the reality is, is for what we do, which is value add workforce housing, we're focusing on like 80s assets, 
there's a shortage of supply for all the demand, you know? So there's so many people coming here that the rents just keep going up. And so we're only focused on Phoenix. We have a lot of good relationships here with the brokers, property manager companies, and we feel like we have a major advantage. I mean, we just toured a deal today and touring two more deals tomorrow. Um, we're, we're about to close a deal. We're about to sell a deal. We're making two offers next week. So we're just very active. And we just feel like if we lived in a different market, we wouldn't know, or we were trying to invest in a different market that we don't live in. We wouldn't know all the players and we wouldn't be able to just get up and go drive a property or go check on one of our existing assets. And so, I mean, we really pay attention to asset management and we really micromanage our on-site managers and make sure that they're executing the plan. So we're just focused on Phoenix. And, and for right now, the plan is to stick to Phoenix and, and just try to dominate this market. Awesome. And what size of deals you're looking, Jack? Our last, after we close the next one, our last three deals have been over 100 units. We're really focused on at least 100 plus units. I mean, if, we're, if there's a smaller deal that's really good, we may go after it. But um, going forward, we're going to be doing at least 20 to $50 million deals, 20 to $70 million deals. So we've been syndicating these deals previously, but um, it was actually just last week, you know, we got second place on a $30 million deal. And it was really frustrating because we had the inside track with the broker. We had the advantage. We had all the information. Okay. I know some people like to say in real estate, it's an unfair business because the relationships, well, we had the unfair advantage. We knew everything going on with all the other offers. We offered the highest price. We offered the most non-refundable money day one. And uh, we didn't get it because we were going up against two institutional groups. And the seller decided to go with an institutional group who had a slightly lower offer simply because they're institutional. And they their perspective is that they're more likely to close. You know, So we're, we're actually focusing on transitioning our model. We're completely overhauling our model. And we're going to be moving away from syndication and moving towards more more private equity and uh, institutional capital so that we can compete at these higher level 30 million plus deals and can just do more volume. You know, we feel like we have the infrastructure in place where the asset management is very efficient. And the reality is, is just we can't compete with these larger groups on these larger deals. And in order for us to scale and reach our goals for operational efficiency, we need to have larger equity sources. And so that's our, our focus going forward is these at least 20 million plus deals and uh, in sourcing larger capital sources. Your offerings are Finance 6B or Finance 6C? Yeah, we've done both. And so of our four syndications, we've done uh, three 506Bs and one 506C. And so we like both. They both have their pros and cons. The one we're closing next month is a 506B and our last deal was a 506B. We did a C last year. Going forward, if we're, if we're sourcing private equity institutional, then we may not be doing like a syndication with a PPM because we'll have one large check being written. But yeah, we've done both of those. Awesome. So one advice that impacted you, Jack. Yeah, absolutely. Man, there's there's so much advice out there. I think, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of experienced people and I think it's just being patient, you know, like it's easy to really put a lot of pressure on yourself and you see people on podcasts and you think they're experts and they're doing deals. They're not experts. Okay, like I'm not an expert. Anybody can do this stuff if you truly put in the time and the focus focus and you take the action and have the courage to call the right people and form the relationships. It's going to be scary and you're going to feel stupid sometimes and you're going to feel like a failure and you just need to get over it. 
You know, you need to just deal with it. And so you have to constantly be attacking, but you have to also be patient and not beat yourself up. Don't compare yourself to other people. Set your own goal, get the first deal, however you have to get it. And then from there, you'll start to adapt and grow and figure the rest out as you go. So you don't need to have the whole the whole plan figured out. You know, you just need to focus and be hyper-focused on what your goal is and be patient, but continue to push forward. Sounds like an oxymoron, but it's true. It's what you have to do. So any of your personal habits that helped you to be successful? Yeah, I think personal habits are the absolute biggest key. Whether you want to be a multifamily syndicator or any type of entrepreneur, you need to really focus on personal growth, personal discipline, you know, and pushing your own comfort zone. So for me, before I got into multifamily, I used to consider myself like a night person. I was not a morning, quote unquote, morning person, meaning I would stay up late. I would stay up till 11, 12, 1, 1 a.m. And, and wake up later, you know, wake up at like 7, 8 o'clock. And I would just say, hey, I'm a night person. That is what it is. But you don't have to be a night person. And the reality is, is that if you can change your disciplines and your habits, you'll become a lot more effective mentally, and physically, everything. So one thing I changed during this process is I read a book called The Miracle Morning for Millionaires by Hal Elrod. And I, I basically just started following it. And basically the premise is, it's called, it's an acronym called SAVERS. And, and, and you can look up the book, anybody in the listeners can look it up. But essentially what I do every day, I wake up between 4.50 to 5 a.m., Okay. And then I drink a bunch of water. So I get hydrated, wash my face, brush my teeth, do that. And then I go into my office and I just pray and meditate. Even if it's for like one or two minutes, just some silent time, like deep breathing, try to be present. I, I pray and then I journal and I journal about what I'm grateful for, what's on my mind, what are my goals are for this week, how can I push myself, etc. And I uh, and then I eat my breakfast. I meal prep my breakfast for every single day on the weekend. So I meal prep. I, I cook um, egg whites and eggs and turkey bacon. And I cook it all on Saturday or Sunday for the entire week for the next seven days, and I put it in the fridge and I divvy it up into seven different days so that it's already ready to go. So that every morning when I wake up, I eat my breakfast, I make my coffee and I, I eat that. And then I do a short workout. Okay. It's like a high intensity workout. It's about eight to 10 minutes. It's like a combination of air squats, burpees and lunges. And it's just high intensity. So it gets me breathing hard. And it's not, I mean, it is good physically, but it's more mentally. It's for mental because it pushes me. It's tough every day. It sucks every day. I do it, but it pushes me and it releases endorphins and it just gets my mind right for the day. Then I shower and then I I'm ready to go. And what it does, it's like I've already mentally been at peace, thought through things, had reflection time, I've worked out. Now I feel great physically and mentally and I'm well hydrated. And it, what it does is it relieves anxiety, really. Because just like anybody, I get anxiety or fear. And when you're trying to be an entrepreneur or take on things you've never done or and pursue these goals, it gets scary and you can easily talk yourself out of it. But when you have the right regimen, you can overcome these challenges. Okay. So I, I'm a big believer now. Wake, go to bed early, wake up early, eat right, exercise, stay hydrated, and then attack. Okay. Cause it's going to give you a relentless warrior mindset where if you're challenging yourself and you're going to war with yourself, you're not going to be vulnerable to other people trying to come at you. And you're not going to be vulnerable to other perceived challenges or adversity because you're going to become mentally tough. And so that, that's the biggest thing that I could say has really given me an advantage is just being on top of that, the sleeping, the eating, exercising, those things are really important.
So any one book that impacted your life and what way? Yeah, good question, Rama. There's so many good books. I mean, I, I mentioned Miracle Morning for Millionaires. I really like that one. Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill is good. You know, that I listen to that so many times just to kind of envision what you want. And it talks about faith. And there's a book called Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, which is really big on mental toughness and overcoming your own challenges or your own personal boundaries. That's really important. Mastery by Robert Greene is a good one. It just talks about how when you're putting in the time, you are making progress, even though you can't visibly see it or recognize it. The Power of Ambition by Jim Rohn is a good one. It just talks about the fundamentals of what it takes to be successful. What you'll learn when you try to become an entrepreneur, you face these challenges, or you listen to any self-help book, you'll start to learn there truly are no shortcuts. It sounds like a cliche, but it's true. It's like the people who are successful are the ones who can stay consistent and they can grind and they can keep going at it. And it's day by day, it doesn't seem like you're making progress and it's tough, but you just stay focused and you just keep your head down and keep going. Going and all of a sudden you look back a year, two years, five years, you've made a ton of progress, you know? So there's a book I'm reading right now called Relentless by Tim Grovers. And he's the, he was the personal trainer for Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade. And one thing that he says a lot in the book, which I really like this book, is that you don't need to like the work. It's okay to hate the work, but you need to love the result. And you want the, you need to understand that the result is a product of the work. And if you want the result so bad that you're willing to put in the work, that's what it takes to be great. That's what it takes to achieve your goals. So you don't need to act like optimistic, like, oh, I'm so happy to do this workout. I'm so happy to do this, this really boring work. But if you know that that work is leading towards your goal and you want that goal so bad and you love that goal, you can envision the destination, then that's what makes you great. You have to just do these things that not a lot of people want to do. And you have to embrace being uncomfortable because that's what it takes. You know, so a lot of those books I just named, like Can't Hurt Me, Relentless. There's a book called Atomic Habits, which is a really good book I like talks about all these books talk about embracing discomfort and just playing out the process and then that will lead towards the results so how are you giving back to community yeah good question i mean we've done some different volunteer programs like feed my starving children volunteered at our church it's tough with covid we need to do a better job our church actually just opened up for the first time a couple months last weekend so we just went back but but yeah we've just done volunteer programs and, and things like that and that's an area we can really improve in honestly we're not really doing enough so but I think it is definitely important, especially as you start to become successful and you can obtain wealth as you need to put it to work, impacting other people. So how can listeners can connect with you, Jack? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So just go to our website, ZH multifamily.com, zhmultifamily.com with no hyphens or anything like that. You can email me, Zach, Z-A-C-H at zhmultifamily.com. There's a contact us sheet. You can fill that out. And there's also a Calendly link to schedule a call with me. Happy to help anybody um, learn anything about investing and, and just go from there. Thanks, Jack. I really loved the conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ron, for having me on your show. I really appreciate the opportunity, man. And, uh, and God bless and we'll stay in touch. Yeah. Thank you. If you like the show, Please subscribe, share, rate, and review. And if you want to connect with me, please send me a message, info at ushacapital.com. Thank you for listening. Creating Wealth Through Passive Apartment Investing Podcast. I hope you learned something from the show. See you in the next episode. Thank you. Any information provided from these shows are educational purpose only. As always, please consult with your own CPA, legal and financial advisor before investing.